Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He's Professor James Daybell. Hello, Sam. Hello, James. Are you well? Very well. Good. Thank you. It's uh, a slightly intrusive question, that, though, because we're doing privacy. <laughs> I like where you're going with that. Very good. <laughs> this is Histories of the Unexpected. It's a show where we demonstrate that everything, even the most unexpected of subjects, has a history. Like water, porter, or slaughter, or even, and I'm really pleased with this, zits. Blitz and Colditz. Very good. Colditz is all about handkerchiefs. Mm, as are Zitz. Yes, yes. And I now imagine the Blitz. People had handkerchiefs during the Blitz. All of them are about handkerchiefs. And everything links together in unexpected ways, doesn't it, James? Which is why handkerchiefs are about the Blitz. Yes. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew that chimneys... Chimneys were, in fact, all about the Industrial Revolution, superstition, Father Christmas, childhood dreams and innocence, fairies, goblins, shoes and smickling. <laughs> Let's come back to smickling later. It's all about fertility and shoes and treading in the shoes of a recently pregnant woman who's given birth and hoping that your cell will have uh, a child and then somehow shoes go up chimneys. <laughs> fertility and shoes and chimneys. Yes. Anyway, this week we're going to do privacy. We're on a bit of a theme, aren't we? We are. I'm giving a talk on the private lives of Tudor women ah, this week, which, which, is why what... which is why we're thinking about this. Hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things that struck me immediately was that privacy is very linked to secrets because you want to be keeping your secrets private, don't you? You don't want them discovered. It's, it, is, it is very similar. Yeah. Yep. But and there's much more to it, isn't there? And there's ways of thinking about, you know, what do we, how do we conceptualise private so private spaces versus public spaces. Yeah, communal. Yeah. State state secrets versus private secrets. The kinds of things that you, the way in which you think about privacy, technologies of privacy, so in keeping, keeping things private. We looked in our last podcast at furniture and boxes and secret, secret cabinets, but think about how people keep ideas or emotions private so mm. it, it opens up a whole a whole world for us that idea of state secrets and privacy makes me think of samuel peeps particularly where um he's, he's a good person for that with his a because he's got his diaries b because he had a a significant role as a secretary of the navy for so yes. so yes. many years but was also a very private person but when then weirdly wasn't a private person because he told everyone about his privacy in his diary 
Yes. That's a strange thing, isn't although it? it? Although it is in shorthand, so it's in a kind of code, yeah. and it had to be translated. Yeah, and so it also does come back to diaries, whether people are writing diaries to record their private thoughts, or whether they're writing diaries to record their private thoughts so that they may be shared later. Yeah, there's this real sort of tension, isn't there, between between historical documents that are ostensibly private, yeah. so correspondence, diaries, journals, but that survive. And and it's whether people intend them to survive. Yeah. And it's what happens to them afterwards. Often what happens is somebody has kept a private journal or private correspondence. Pri- correspondence often goes to other people. Well, it always goes to other people who have then kept it. Um, a lot of private documents may pass into the hands of family upon the death of the the writer and then it's the decision of the of the family what to do with it do they keep it in the family in the you know in in the family line and pass it on and pass it on do they dispose of it at some point does it then get into a a museum that they yeah. decide that suddenly something that was private is now of great interest because it is you know, it's of historic value. Yeah, it's one of the sort of the fundamental differences of writing diaries and writing blogs, isn't yep. it? I yep. mean, so diaries. I mean, Samuel Pepys's diary would have been in his study somewhere. Yes. It wouldn't have been laid out for all of his guests no. to read. No, and politicians often write, often keep diaries in order to defend their political record later on. Yeah. So and and also to make lots of money about after they after they leave office and they're you know they make you know, a ton of money out of publishing. So that's an example of something that's private now, yes. but it is not going to be in the future. Yes. Hmm. So it's quite historical. It is quite... <laughs> Histories of the unexpected. It's very historical. I want to share with you... Uh, I want to talk about the private lives of Tudor women, yep. since I'm going to be talking about this. And I, in a little bit, I'll talk about you know how we think about that and how we get into it. But I want to start with an example mm-hmm. of how one might construct a private life. And this is of an Elizabethan gentlewoman a woman called Elizabeth Bourne, who on the 6th of December, 1582, petitioned for a divorce from her husband, Anthony Bourne, who was one of the serious wastrels of the age. Uh, You you can't imagine a more disgraceful, (laughs) despicable man. We know about all of this because we have this this court case about divorce. It was one of the sort of early... Sort of divorce cases. It wasn't. She wasn't allowed to divorce, but she chronicled in it all of her husband's faults. So it's basically her personal testimony that is written down by a by a legal clerk, and she records her disgraceful husband's taking away of another man's wife, by whom he had four bastards. His refusal of her company. He refused her access to her own children. He had, and I quote, wasted his own personal wealth or substance and her ancient inheritance, all the money she'd brought in. He had sworn her death and destruction. He had attempted to blow up her house, her children, her as well, Mm. with gunpowder. He'd attempted to poison her. He'd sent a man from France burnt in the hand to stab her with a dagger. And on one occasion, he threatened to peel the skin off her back with a knife if she didn't release to him her jointure. And jointure is the lands that you bring into a marriage that support somebody during widowhood. And in recounting her husband's numerous women, she's particularly waspish about a woman called Anne Vaughan, who, according to Elizabeth Bourne, was most famous for her ill life, as common a harlot as any (laughs) in Bridewell. And she was apparently so syphilitic that she couldn't walk. (laughs) She was, Bourne wrote, 
not able to be removed but in a cart. The pox had so consumed her. (laughs) One of the sad things, most sad things about her is that she is orphaned when she's 14 and she becomes a ward of court. And during this period, somebody who was a ward of court could basically be bought Mm. by the highest bidder. And what happens is a a high-up, high-ranking official in Mary the First reign purchases her wardship and marries her to his son. And so this is Sir John Bourne, Secretary of State under Mary. And then she ends up married to this guy who treats her monstrously. On his own mother's death, Anthony Bourne kicks his mother out of the, the house, kicks her into the, into the dower house. So we know about this because of court records, so we can record all of this. There's also a really... The reason I got into this example, first of all, was that there is a massive collection of her own private writings as well mm-hmm. that survive, that chronicle her, her story. And it really is one of the most sad sort of stories that really gets us to the heart of private lives of women. You can really sort of look at the intimate details of their, of their family life. You can have a look at what Tudor patriarchy was like. You know, this was a period when for, for women, if you were unmarried or you were treated appallingly by your husband, there was very little recorded. Mm. And, you know, she seems to have sort of bounced around from one family member to another with very little to support her. And she describes in one of her letters, almost like Mr. Wemmick in Dickens, talked about portable property. She talks about having gold that she can sort of carry around. So there we are. There's an example of a private life of a Tudor woman. So you're kind of, you're, you're in that respect, you are just reliant on there being some good written sources, which allows you to, to open that window into the past. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. And there are not that many of them. But there are enough for you to realise that you can start thinking about it. Well, I mean, there there are there are lots of them. I mean, first you need to start thinking about what what is it about private life that you're that you're interested in. If we look at it from the perspective of biographers, you know, biographers talk about the private lives of the Tudors, and basically what they're interested in is the sex and politics of you know Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. So it's it, they're interested in lurid details. But I think there's enough material that survives, that is either written by women themselves, diaries, letters, correspondence, all of those kinds of things, that, and all sorts of material sources. Yeah. You know, that's a really strong, strong body of material that allows us to think about how we conceptualise privacy and private lives of women. So the degree to which we can get at intimacy and introspection so the, the, the extent to which we can look at emotions and thoughts and feelings and desires. So rather than the sort of public outward lives, you actually are able to look at women's inner lives, religious piety, the way that they talked about ailments and illnesses, the dreamscapes. We've talked about the history of the dream in the past. To what extent can we recreate that, something that is very, very intimate? Um, their sex lives even. You know that that you know you could write a whole chapter on the sex lives of mm-hmm. of Tudor women. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? It's just it's just having access to the to the right sources, yes. isn't it? Unsurprisingly, I'm going to take you to the world of ships. Good, good, <laughs> private ships. <laughs> well, you could do that, privateering. Privateering. I didn't yes. think about that. So, no. um, private ships are privately owned warships. 
essentially. So you're um, it, it's it's warships which which fought alongside the state. So you have the Royal Navy, but then you can have a load of privateers who can they have a letter of mark and they can go and um, uh, private warfare. We might have to come back and do that, but I'm not going to be talking about it in respect of that. So many years ago, shortly after I'd finished my PhD, I worked for the SS Great Britain, Brunel's wonderful passenger liner in Bristol. And I helped out with the uh, interpretation team. And one of the jobs was to dress the cabins. And so I'm going to just talk briefly about the different... Well, it's, 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 what am I going to talk about? It's the maritime geography of privacy. <laughs> no, the privacy, the maritime historical geography of privacy. It's the, his, it's the geography of privacy on ships. Oh, great. Is really, really interesting. Brilliant. Love it. Yeah. Just quickly start off with the SS Great Britain. There's an entry of a diary here from J.M. Hardwick, who had a first-class cabin, 26th of August, 1852. So it would have been going to Australia. And this was a you know very, very famous ship. It was the first kind of luxury passenger liner Queen Victoria visited in 1845. Um, here we are. Here's his diary. Dinner was first-rate, quite such as you would get at the best hotels. Soup, grouse, pigeon, veal pies, pork, ham and other meat dishes, sundry puddings and tarts and jelly, blancmange, cheese, celery... And after all that, a dessert. <laughs> so his, his his concerns as a first-class passenger are entirely food-based, right? It's interesting and important, yes. this, because he's got his own cabin. Ooh. Okay. Private so dining. Then we have, imagine making a jelly on a ship. How would that work? So Lots of gelatin, I imagine. Just move around. It would never set. Unless you had a very firm-set jelly. Ah, the more, the more gelatin, the firmer the consistency would be. Mm. Less likely to wobble. Here you are. This is a third-class passenger known as steerage because you were often down where the clanking of the chains and the, the uh, propeller or the rudder were. It was all quite a noisy part of the boat. So first class would have been in a nice quiet part. Hmm. This is Scottish emigrant Alan Gilmore. Our berths are pretty well ventilated, but very confined and dark. He wrote in his diary 1852. So this is the same voyage as that first-class passenger. Now, this is the key bit. The distance between our berths is two foot broad and six foot long, so confined that only one can dress at once. That's not a lot of space. So, you know, life there, I think, would have been okay as long as everyone got on with each other. And, you know, the big problem there is not necessarily the food. It's just it's, it's how they get on with their fellow passengers. It's a completely mm. different experience. So it, it draws a very distinct line in terms of privacy between the first-class passengers and the, mm. and the and the steerage-class passengers. But then there's another issue here which comes from the diaries of the SS Great Britain, which is all to do with love. So a lot of these long voyages um, was a chance to, to be romantic, to meet people, and often they people would marry their fiancés when, when they got to where they were going. This is from Clara Aspinall of 1862. Eight or ten unmarried ladies on board, some with parents, others under the care of our captain, <laughs> as if they need protecting. He has no sooner cast anchor in Hobson's Bay than he has to deck himself in bridal array and hasten to church to perform the fatherly office of giving away a bevy of fair charges. And when I read that, it just really made me think of romance and privacy on board a ship and how that actually worked. I don't know how it worked, but there would have there are always quiet dark spaces yes. on ships where you can you can go and have a bit of time by yourself but it would have been particularly important for a for a voyage that lasts for 4 months and if there were you, you've got lots of single men on board and you've got lots of single women on board which often happened with the colonies there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, just move from there to Titanic, because there's a real difference, again, the cabins, which has always fascinated me this. So the most expensive are the parlor suites. How much would a parlor suite on Titanic have cost you, James? In dollars. <laughs> Uh, in modern day money. Oh, in modern day money. Yeah. What um, were you going to blow on your trip to uh, America? W- are we talking day rate or for the vo- for the voyage? Uh, for the voyage. Voyage. Um, Fifteen thousand dollars. One hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. What? Goodness me. Cheapest one. Cheapest berth in third class cabin was three hundred and fifty. There were not a lot of these parlor suites. No, I bet. That's expensive. The largest man-made moving object on Earth. You've got to pay 100 grand to get the fanciest suite. Goodness me. They have wardrobe rooms, private baths, private baths, important, private promenades. So there's a history of private walking on ships. You see, you need space to take the air. You need space to um, to woo, don't you? Love love and promenading, private walking. Um, it all changes with second-class cabins. You have you have um, a chamber pot. You've got a, a, a wash basin, and you've got a, a. But you have to use a communal bathroom, and you would have shared up to two to four berths per cabin. You, your only privacy was achieved with a curtain around your berth. Then third-class cabin, and then you've got something like six people in a narrow cabin. And again, they're sharing their bathroom. So you've got privacy relating to washing as well as you've got privacy relating to sleeping and privacy relating to walking. Those are all completely different things and they were controlled. Hmm. Let me let me ra- let me take your privacy and ships and raise you. Um, spaceships. No, no, no. Oh. Spe- but take take <laughs> take space into houses. Okay. Because a lot of the themes are very similar. And there rather on on ship you have you'll have communal areas and then and then sort of more individual private areas with yeah. with cabins but in imagine shifts in house design over time you know the and there's a very sort of crude chronology that you can trace from say a medieval hall where everything is you know very communal you have the hall you have the sort of the chapel the parlor you may have a, a chamber kitchen buttery and pantry a lot of these areas are very public and communal in fact the medieval hall was a very public place where guests would be invited in, travellers would be invited in to have hospitality. As we move into the 16th and 17th centuries, if we have a look at architectural plans, you can see the increase of private space. So the increase of bedchambers with little closets off them. By the 17th century, you've got the development of stairs above and below stairs, stairs that are outside of the public rooms. that So the family could basically be in the public room. The servants wouldn't have to sort of pass through it, but would come through different yep. sort of stairs. So so there's that rise of private space. Yep. Map onto that, changing social relationships between servants and, say, the family that lived in, in, in the house. Think also about how that impacts upon the family relationships, relationships between parents and children, the kind of privacy that you were talking about earlier on, the privacy of lovers to be able to find space. Yeah. In a packed household, where is the private space for a husband and wife? You know, And how does that impact 
the kind of relationship that they have? What does that suggest about the nature of family life? We're talking here, you know, largely about um, large houses. You know, we're talking largely about sort of private houses and, you know, the sort of national trust style properties. A really interesting thing to do is to take a building that exists today and look at it through its stages and how it's developed. And one of the interesting things is looking at how over the course of the 16th and 17th century we get this increase in domestic space with staircases, separation of public and private rooms, the rise of studies and closets. But I was really struck by what you said about the ships and about how you achieve a degree of privacy within a communal space. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. And it, it also, it'll vary. So there's, there'll be an amazing history of privacy within commun certain communal spaces. Yes. So whether it's trains, would be really interesting. I'm always fascinated by trains. I was watching Murder on the Orient Express the other day, mm. just wondering about what was going on with privacy on trains, how that actually worked. And that they, everyone had their individual cabins, but the walls were completely paper thin. Yep. Very Agatha Christie-like. But the, you know, the point was you could hear what was going on yep. next door. There, what, there, wasn't, there was an illusion of privacy. Um, so trains, I think, is an interesting world for privacy, as it'd be similar to ships. Even but, in a even in a crowded room, sort of party, how you get privacy to you either step outside or you you put your heads together, you go into a corner, yeah, and you. It's interesting, you know. You hop that, up. That's ringing a bell. Uh, people talking in windows. People talking in corners. People talking in windows was there's a very well-known example of Henry VIII. That's right, taking Cromwell into a window. So one of those those sort of windows that you can sort of walk into and sort of taking him away from, from somebody to sort of confer yeah. with them. It's in Geoffrey Elton's collection of essays on the Tudor court, I think. I bet Cicero's got something to say about privacy. Cicero has something to say about everything. everything. Caesar and Cicero, particularly Cicero, I bet he plotted in secret, in plotting and privacy. Where do you plot? Private from, from prying eyes. We're here in your shed, privately. We are. Recording. Yeah. No one knows what we're doing. No one knows what we're doing until yeah. we release it to the public. But the same, you know, so you can do, you take that idea through. So you've got politics and secrecy. We've talked about passenger liners and secrecy. There'll be the same thing with uh, naval ships. So the secrecy, privacy, planning mutiny, privacy of the lower deck sailors away from the officers. How do they get their own identity and feel private and feel there's a quite an important sense of sort of personal self-worth they need to yep. have their own identity yeah, and that's yeah. all to do with privacy and divisions and but and it, it, sorry it'll apply with armies as well so you, yes. can, you can all armies across all time i will just imagine napoleon's invasion camp in 1805 right because yep. we're near the anniversary of trafalgar but that's an example that's an interesting camp how did they how did privacy work there it's one of these brilliant examples of, of a subject working across history yes privacy also links to segregation what you talked about on the Titanic and the different sort of classes, it links to class boundaries. Yeah. So people being the upper classes being private and separate from the lower social orders, women being often separated from men for various reasons throughout history. Yeah. And and it's a and it's a, it also has racial overtones as well. Yeah. You know, if you, if you think about segregation in the United States. You know, so whites wanting privacy, in a sense being separate from African Americans. You mm -hmm. know, and 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 all of this, you know, has undercurrents of control and social order yeah. that you can map across time. And what about the? I would talk briefly about it. The 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 
the material culture, the the the, the physical yes. manifestation, the material culture of privacy. Yes. Um, and keys is one thing that I've been writing about them. because yes. we're doing histories of the unexpected, the Vikings so at keeping the moment. Things. Yes. And there's a chapter on keys, and there keys is. are wonderful. So that's the you, you've got a wonderful phrase. What is it? It's the material culture of access and con- space or something. Yes. So, so the people who have the keys control the space. They control access to certain things, and it's also with doors as well. You know, you, you get private uh, private space by securing it by yep. by closing a door or securing a thing. And one of the great stories we found in our Vikings book was the Viking site of Burka in Sweden, massive hall of warriors, and not only have they found um, hundreds of arrowheads and spearheads and, and arrows, it's clearly clearly a very important military site. But they found loads and loads of keys and padlocks. Yes, haven't they? Some of them are big for securing chests or something. But what fascinated me was that quite a lot of them were tiny and useless. Uh, well, not useless, but they were tiny like the kind of padlock you would use for a teenager might secure their private diary with. It's, it's, what, it's like a little toy padlock. It does yeah. work, but it's, it's, it doesn't work but if you actually want to get But it's not going to stop somebody who comes and wants, and wants to force the lock. It's not going to protect no. it. So it's... it's um, I mean, archaeologists are writing about this, thinking that these locks are somehow symbolic of rank and control of power rather than actually functioning in that way yes. which i thought was really interesting yeah and it's also the viking keys are also connected to the role of women as housewives yeah and you know a woman who had the keys to the household then controlled the household space could control access could protect goods that were inside of it, and that's what that it's, it's that's intricately linked to privacy because the house is your private domestic space, and so controlling that that you have these keys, which actually some open doors, some didn't open doors, some were symbolic, some didn't. It's a it's a wonderful world out there. there there's a fascinating article I read years ago, uh, probably twenty years ago, which was about it was about an aristocratic household full of rooms, all of which had doors that were lockable, and the key the key thing, pardoning the pun, was who controlled the keys. Who had the keys to all of these spaces? The person who had the keys was the person who controlled access throughout the household. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, if we moving on from the material culture, and we've looked at we've looked at the sort of physical environment of space on on ships and in architecture. We've looked at the material culture. We've thought about keys, locks, doors, entry points. Think about. Let's go back to documents. Yeah. Where do we? What? Where do? Where does privacy lie? In documents, we've talked about the issue of private documents that now are public. What forms of documents did people write on in a in a private way? Particularly when you don't have access to when you don't have access to paper. A lot of my private stuff is in is on scraps. Yes, that's a private list for me. Yes, and that's for my own eyes only, and it's not for anyone else. And it's by my desk, and it's a completely illegible gibberish script. And so that what that is that's very that's ephemeral. Yeah, that's something that will be thrown away. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of lot of work being done on waste paper mm. and private sort of ephemera and how we how we recapture that. Yeah, I mean one of the most interesting things I've worked on I may have spoken about this in the past is books that were really important within the household, particularly Bibles. And family Bibles were a site for people to write down quite personal, private information. But privacy there is defined as communal because it's it's private within the family, rather than so so the the divide is between the family and public. But it's not it's not private as in the sense of the individual. So when the other kind of thing that you could 
think about is when do individually private documents come around? You know, things that people want to keep to themselves. You know, when when do we see the rise of the private diary? It tends to be, you know, we tend to think about it as connected to the Reformation and a new form of religion that encourages introspection. Uh, Catholics have always encouraged introspection through confession, but it's something that's been oral and, and in between two people. But we're, when we see the rise of Protestantism, people are forced to commune with themselves, their own inner world, and it's recording that in private spiritual journals where I think we start seeing the rise of development of a private individual self. Hmm. It's a big thought to end with. It is a big thought to yeah. end with. It's a, a privacy. It's all about the history of the Reformation <laughs> and gloves. <laughs> private gloves. Yeah. I, it's, it's good. I, I really enjoyed this. Um, we're, we're, how can we do it? We've done secrets and privacy. What can we do as a third one, as a trio for these? Honour. Hi- Silence. Hiding. Hiding. Oh, hiding would be great. Yeah. Let's spitball hiding very quickly. Okay, go. Uh, Jesuits. Priest holes. Mm-hmm. Um, Second World War, Anne Frank. Yes, cupboards. Yep. Kids games. Hide and seek. Oh, that's really interesting. Chimneys, people hiding in chimneys. People hiding in chimneys. In chests. Horror stories, ghosts. Yeah. Maybe we can cover it in our Halloween special. Yes. Hiding Ooh. under floorboards. Oh yes, and knocking and sounds and um, I remember that I, one of the most painful. Well, it's all to do with searching as well, isn't it? Yes, terrifying. Searches. It's to do with terror. Schindler's List. Do you remember in Schindler's List the where they where they go into the the, the communal toilets? Yeah, and there are little boys' heads poking yeah. out of the. But that is to do with abuse hiding. as well. It people, yes. people hiding, um, physically hiding from and, and from yes. violent people and yes. nightmares. Yes. Oh, let's do hiding. Hiding. Okay, okay. that's hiding. Back down. hiding next. Um, if you enjoyed this uh, chat, I hope you did. There's many, many more. Check out the rest of our podcast. We've got over ninety. We've got to decide on what we're going to do for our hundredth. We've got to decide what we're going to we're going to release next. We've just recorded about five million <laughs> of these things, all all at the same time. We've got to think of an order. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, listen to those and check out our book, Histories of the Unexpected, which we're very proud of. And it's got thirty different topics, and they're all linked to each other in very clever ways. And we we're working on a couple more and um, depends when you're listening to this but check us out on our website to see if we're doing a live show near you historiesoftheunexpected.com we are also on Twitter Unexpected Pod we're on Flickr we're on Instagram we're on Facebook we have a YouTube channel (laughs) just come come and find us come and find us us. Histories of the Unexpected thanks a lot for listening guys bye bye thank you bye